0: and i'm an alcoholic um so i have a friend renee that lives in frisco texas and um, she's a really good friend and we hadn't seen each other because of the pandemic and everything like that so a few months ago i just got in the car and drove to frisco texas to go see her she screamed when i walked into her home group and she's like what brings you to frisco and i was like you bring me to frisco like I i hadn't seen you in a long time and i needed to see you right uh, because I've learned that we make friends in AA, but then you have to actually work at maintaining those friendships. And it takes some effort and it's hard to do, but it's necessary and it's always to my benefit. And so at that meeting, there was a young man who was visiting from the McKinney group and afterwards we went to fellowship at some taco place and we were sitting across eating tacos and we got to talking and he said oh you live in austin i'm gonna be in austin next weekend and so i said oh my gosh we should go to some meetings so we ended up doing like this meeting marathon run when he came to visit and we got to know each other and we really had a great time and um and we i learned a lot about him i learned a lot about um you know, his commitment to service and, um, and commitment to making and then keeping commitments and, um, and about, uh, his higher power and about his approach to sobriety. And I was just pretty impressed with him. He seemed really like a great guy and we've become very good friends in just a short amount of time. In fact, we're talking about our road trip that we're going to be taking to Arkansas in a couple of months. And, um, and that's going to be a great time I'm looking forward to. Um, so, uh, He just literally pulled in an hour ago from McKinney, Texas, which should demonstrate for you all how committed he is when he says he's going to show up to be our speaker. And so that means a lot when someone comes such a long distance to share their experience, strength, and hope with us. So I hope you end up loving him as much as I do, and that's Chancellor.
1: Good evening, everybody. My name is Chancellor Alexander and I'm a grateful alcoholic. By the grace of God, I've been sober since 10, 10 of 21, and for that I'm so grateful. I know it's a miracle that I'm at a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous tonight, and I truly believe it's a miracle that every single one of you are here as well. If we just keep getting younger and younger. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I would have made it into that age. You know, we got a couple of people here in the first 90 days. I got good news and bad news. The good news is there is a solution. The bad news is this thing will mess up your drinking. So if you're not done, I suggest leaving. No, I'm just, don't leave, you'll hurt my feelings. Well, I'm just kidding about that, you won't hurt my feelings because today, I don't care what other people think. I'd be lying to you if I said I didn't want you to like me, but I used to get my validation off of what other people thought about me. And today, for the first time in a long time, I like myself, and that is a great feeling. You know, the book is full of promises. We read some of the most famous ones, The Ninth Step Promises, and uh, there's some really good stuff in there. Uh, I think my personal favorite is that it says I'm going to have a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. And that has been my experience. I've had a spiritual awakening, and it's changed everything about my life. It's changed the way that I view the world, other people, and myself. Because I was a very selfish person. Talking about commitments, I'm commitment averse. And, you know, my entire life up until finding AA was expectations versus reality. I had a lot of expectations of what I thought life should be and the things that I should have. And whenever things didn't meet up, I was disappointed. And then I get in here and I hear that expectations are premeditated resentments. To be honest, I don't think I knew what a resentment was. But today I understand what they mean. And I had a lot of expectations. I thought if I came to AA, I was going to be in a smoke-filled room full of a bunch of grumpy old men (laughs) sitting around chain-smoking, complaining about their lives. And uh, I have been to some meetings like that. But for the most part, I was surprised. Y'all were laughing and smiling. And I didn't have anything to laugh or smile about. And I remember hearing somebody say they were a grateful alcoholic for the first time. I thought that person is certifiably insane. Surely, they don't mean that they're grateful to be an alcoholic. Maybe they're grateful that, you know, they're not in jail and that they got their driver's license back and they have a place to sleep. But could they really mean they're grateful to be an alcoholic? I didn't know. And I heard a lot of things in the beginning that just didn't make sense. And that was okay because I wasn't there yet. Some of the stuff was just paradoxical in nature. I couldn't understand it. Whenever you said that I had to surrender if I wanted to win, what do you mean? Surrendering to me meant defeat. Or if I want to keep it, I have to give it away? What the hell? You know, it just it didn't make sense, and that was okay. Because I heard some things that were clear enough I could comprehend. Whenever you told me to get a big book and read it, to get a sponsor and use it and keep coming back. And I really like that last part. I'm not so sure why. Maybe I hadn't heard it in a while. People were telling me, don't come back now, you hear? <laughs> and uh, I followed those instructions. I got a sponsor, and it has changed my life. And now I'm the crazy guy that identifies as a grateful alcoholic. And I really mean it. I'm grateful to be an alcoholic because had I not found this program and discovered what alcoholism looks like in my life, I would either be dead or continuing to sleepwalk through my life, taking advantage of and hurting the people that love me the most. I've got a good friend of mine. We went out to eat a couple weeks ago, and he knows I'm in the program. He asked me if it was okay if he had a beer with his dinner. And I said, no problem. It's not going to bother me at all. And we're sitting there, we're eating some really good food, and he's just nursing this beer. I mean, Mm. I've never seen somebody drink a beer so slow. And we've been there about an hour. You know, our tongues are getting tired. We're having a great time, and I'm looking. He hasn't even gotten halfway through with his beer, and it's bothering me at this point because I know it's getting it's getting warm. And and so another 15 minutes go by, and and uh, he says, you know, man, this has been great, but I've got to go. And I'm like, I'm thinking, you got to, what? You haven't finished your beer. And at this point, I realize he's not going to finish it. He's going to leave it there halfway full, and that bothered me. You know, if you would have asked me if he could have half a beer, I would have said no, 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 no. You're you're either gonna finish it or you're not gonna have it. But that's because I'm different. You know, I have this mental obsession when it comes to alcohol, and when I drink it, I don't know how much I'm gonna drink. And uh, speaking of alcohol and uh, and being drunk and all that, you know, I'm gonna talk to you about that tonight because this is Alcoholics Anonymous. And out of respect for the singleness of purpose i'm going to try to keep it to alcohol getting drunk and drinking but my experience is it comes in all forms it could be solid liquid gas you know i i didn't used to jive with the whole disease concept i thought that that was hogwash and it was a cop-out you know i spent a long time thinking that i just needed to have more willpower to be a little bit stronger next time and not cross that line And today I understand I had been at dis-ease my entire life and I, when I got in here, it made sense. And so today I understand that I have a disease that's rooted in my mind. That's trying to kill me. And it, it does that by convincing me that something outside of myself is going to fix the way I feel inside, whether that's alcohol, drugs, sex, money, going somewhere, doing something. It's always telling me I need something from out there to make me feel better in here. And so whenever I talk to you tonight about alcohol and drinking, just know that I could mean an assortment of things. Uh, And I'll tell you a little bit about what led me to this point. You know, I was born in Texas, near outside of Dallas. And, uh, you know, I'm sure it was the happiest day of my parents' life because they just hit the child jackpot. You know, I was born and my mother's holding me. And uh, pretty soon they had to take me away because I stopped breathing. I've had a thing for dramatic uh, drama, I guess. And I spent the next couple of days in the NICU, and this was the beginning of what would become a, uh, a repetitive thing in my life. You know, they were worried sick about me, and I was at near death myself. Spoiler alert: I survived. And you know, I had a really great childhood for the first five years. I remember things being phenomenal for the most part. My grandmother moved down and helped raise me. We were very, very close. And uh, I never uh, needed for anything. I wanted for a lot, but I never needed for anything. And whenever I was about five, I lost two of my uncles uh, within a 12-month period. It was both of my mother's brothers and both of my grandmother's sons. And so the two women that were taking care of me had just lost the two closest men to them in their life. And it sent them into a severe depression that I don't think they ever got out of. And... I began to be a little bit enmeshed in that relationship, codependent. I learned that I could use humor and and be, be whatever they needed me to be to help make them feel better. And early on in my childhood, two things were apparent. That school came really easy. I didn't need to do much studying. I was gifted and that I was always in trouble. I was in the principal's office all the time, constantly uh, getting parent-teacher conferences. I I heard that recess was a lot of fun but I was always in time out. (laughs) And at 12 a lot of things changed in my life. Three very important things happened at that age. I got my first girlfriend and I was crazy about her. Uh, I got my first job and I fell in love with making money and I tried alcohol for the first time. So you see I got a little extra coin in my pocket from my job and I felt like a man. Now, I got this girlfriend. I can take her out, right? I'm a real man. So we would get dropped off at the movie theater. (laughs) And then I would tell her, baby, get whatever you want. You want the large popcorn? Get some M&Ms, too. And uh, and things things were going good. They were going really good. And she broke up with me, and I took it really hard. And I want to preface that a lot of the things I'm going to talk about tonight, I didn't realize for a long time there's power and there's clarity that comes with working in these steps and working through them. And so I can look back now in hindsight is 2020, but I didn't realize the things that were going on at the time. So, She gave this necklace that I had given to her for our four-month anniversary to a friend of mine named Keith Mwangi from Nigeria. And he comes up to me in the hallway of seventh grade, and he sticks his hand out, and he hands me this necklace. And I said, Keith, are you breaking up with me? (laughs) And sure enough, he was. (laughs) I took it really, really hard, and uh, I didn't know what to do. So I cried for three days. And I did the only thing that made sense. I got her back. And then I broke up with her. <laughs> that, was, that, that was the only thing I knew to make me feel a little bit better. And from that day forward, I told myself I was never going to let anybody hurt me that way again. And I started building this wall around my heart. And I started viewing girls differently. I was no longer that sweet, innocent guy that was buying necklaces for a four-month anniversary. And it just changed a lot. And then I had my, my first drink. And it was amazing. I fell in love with it from the beginning. We went, we snuck out of my buddy's room. Uh, after drinking uh, uh, some stuff we took from his parents, we went smashing pumpkins and running around laughing. And I just remember feeling so free and it was so fun. And I knew immediately that I wanted to do it again as soon as I could. And so I equated fun to drinking and drinking to fun. They were one and the same. And I began hanging out with a lot of older kids And that was just uh, what I wanted to do, and it was all I really did. And so I remember getting caught for the first time. I'd been drinking and smoking pot daily for about a year at this point, and I'm 15, and I come home, and my parents had found my stash. You know, there's bottles, there's paraphernalia, and I thought, okay, this was coming. I'm going to have to have the talk with them. And uh, I sit them down on the couch, and I tell them, this stuff's the greatest thing I've ever i've ever found i mean this is the secret to life i want to do this every day for the rest of my life and i thought they were going to take it all right they didn't you know Uh, my mom cried and my dad yelled that was kind of the thing she's crying he's yelling it went on for a while and uh, i learned pretty quickly after that not to be so honest when it comes to that kind of stuff and i got better about that um I, I grew up going to church, so I, I knew right from wrong, and I knew what they're, they're preaching in there, but uh, I never quite felt comfortable, and I dropped out of the Sunday school as soon as I could after kind of berating them, like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be here. So finally, I didn't have to be there anymore, and uh, I was just doing whatever I wanted, and I was constantly grounded, but I would find ways to get out and manipulate the situation. So whenever I'm about 16 years old, I... Uh, I get transferred schools by my parents. They thought the geographical location thing was gonna work for me. And uh, I had gotten really good at adapting and and fitting into situations. I'd gone to a lot of different schools just from kind of moving and doing some things. And so I was really pissed at first because I thought they took it too far. You know, they deleted my number. They even deleted my MySpace. And I was just like, come on, man. Y'all are taking this over the line. But I forgot that I I had a knack for fitting in and and making new friends. So pretty quickly, I had met the people that were doing the things I was doing. I was dating the prettiest girl at the school, and everything was good. But this was the year that things really took a turn in my life. I lost two friends to suicide within a 11-month period. And I just remember thinking, I want to get so drunk, I can't think about this. I mean, it was just my immediate reaction. And so I was no longer only drinking to have fun, but I was now drinking to escape, to self-medicate, and to numb. I still thought I was having fun, and I did. You know, I want to say that as well. I had a lot of fun. I had a lot of fun drinking. I'm not the one that's going to sit up here and tell you it's all bad. It was fun for a little while, but once it wasn't, it wasn't. And so at this point, I'm convinced that my parents are the problem and that if i could just get out of their house uh, everything would be okay i was first diagnosed with depression at age 17 and i did not identify with that i thought if everybody would get off of my ass i wouldn't even be in here talking to you and whenever i go out to parties i have fun everybody else has fun i don't see anything wrong with the way that i'm living i can look back now and i see that god is a gentleman he will knock He's not going to come in until I ask him. And I can see clearly looking back the times that he was knocking. I don't think that I was aware of what was going on um, or I was just too blind to see. But that's what this program has given me today is I, I can hear the knocks. I have this conscious contact with God today, the spirit within as a result of the awakening that I can hear the knocks and I choose to let him in. But looking back, you know, it started with parents and teachers trying to tell me, just be good. I don't understand why you don't do the right thing. And then eventually it was police officers and judges. And at this point, the first time I got in trouble with the law, I got caught driving without a license. Uh, And I'd gotten a lot better. I'd been taking the car out for three months, but I wasn't gonna tell my parents that because I had learned the lesson from before. So I said, this was the very first time you know, I wish I'd have said that when they found the paraphernalia. And, uh, and so I go to the judge and, and I get some probation. I will say that I'm a lucky guy. My entire story is littered with situations and slaps on the wrist. I can't tell you how many times I was almost in deep, deep trouble. And for whatever reason, I got let off the hook over and over again. I graduate high school a year early because I'm convinced that if I just get out on my own, everything's going to get better. So I watched Animal House and that <laughs> looked fun, you know, <laughs> looked a lot better than what I had going on in my life. And uh, I got my first job as a server at the age of 18 and they were having an issue with the bartenders. They were stealing alcohol and money. And so they had this brilliant idea that because TABC says you can have an 18 year old bartender that they were gonna promote somebody for the first time an 18 year old. And they said, well, surely Chancellor's not gonna steal money in alcohol. <laughs> and uh, they taught me how to do that, the people behind the bar. And so it was a perfect job for me. I loved it. My grandmother lived across the street from the, the bar I was working at. And at this point, her and I are extremely close. And I found out that she was an alcoholic. I never knew it was like a family secret. You know, but she was a binge drinker. She wasn't a daily drinker, but when she drank, she got drunk. And so we started drinking together when I was about 15. And, uh, and she was a hell of a lot of fun for the first two drinks. First two drinks, great. After that, it was super mad or super sad. And, uh, and so I'm having a a hell of a time doing this. And I remember, let me back up a second. I worked at a movie theater. And this is one of the slap on the wrist. So I'm I'm cleaning up a theater, and I would just gone out on a break and gotten high, and I had a big bottle of Jack Daniels in my car that I was sipping off of. And uh, this is like the last uh, showing of the movies. And I'm I'm sweeping, and it's just me in there, and a police officer comes in. And he says, excuse me, can I talk to you? And I'm thinking,
0: "Mm -hmm,
1: talk to me? And he says, yeah, I need to talk to you. And he says, somebody called and said that you were doing some things on your break that you shouldn't have been doing. And so we go round and round and long story short, he, he gets me outside and they got the place lit up with like five cop cars and I, I'm trying to play hardball, but they're threatening to get a dog and all this crap. So they, they get it all out there, the, the pot and the, the liquor. And I'm convinced I'm going to jail and they sit me down and there's like six of them and they're giving me this intervention style talk. And I can't remember much of anything that they said, but I, I'm pretty sure they said if, you, like, they're talking about the guys in their, in their high school that they went, and they went down this path, and I'm almost certain they said, you keep this up, you're gonna wind up behind a podium talking to a bunch of people, <laughs> telling them, and, uh, and I couldn't hear a word they said, you know what I mean? I couldn't hear a word they said. They called my dad, and that was one of the final straws. He had told me he'd never come get me out of trouble again, but he did. This was just a couple months before I graduated high school, so I was, I was just done. You know, I just had to do it on my own after that. And I ended up getting fired from the, uh, the restaurant as well, but that wasn't my fault. I forgot to tell you all. Everything that happened to me wasn't my fault. <laughs> it was always wrong place, wrong time. You see, I was told that I should... Uh, my dad always said, you've probably heard this, uh, to learn from other people's mistakes... But I always thought, man, I don't make the same mistake twice, and I thought that was smart. But then I realized how many mistakes there are to make, and it's just there's there's too many. And There's too many. And the people liked me, man. Both of the managers at the Cinemark and the uh, restaurant, they didn't want to fire me. It was just the circumstances. They said you were a great employee. We didn't have to. We wouldn't want to fire you. But man, the the parking lot was lit up. <laughs> like we have to do something, and. And so I always grew up being a Longhorn fan. Any Longhorn fans in here? Got a couple? So, so I was dating this girl, and she was a, a Aggie. Her family was all Aggies, and I, I was like, ah, I don't know about that. And so her, her dad took us to a tailgate, and his company had a Miller Lite bus there. And so we got to drink as much as we wanted. And by the end of the night, I'm saying, giggle. And so... I end up heading down to College Station and, you know, I had this bar and I'm not talking about the collection of liquor in my apartment or the tavern that I'd go to in the evenings to get drunk. But it was this standard that I judged myself and other people based off of because at this point I'd never been arrested. So I was always like, I'm not going to get arrested. If I get arrested, you know, then maybe I have a problem. And so I do what any good alcoholic does and I just lower that bar. And so my time in College Station was filled with just lowering the bar. I got arrested and looking back, God was knocking. I couldn't see it. I was pissed. You know, it wasn't my fault. And I had to pay a lot of money and probation and all that crap. But I look back now and I see that two of the guys I was running with were dead within six months. You know, and I didn't see that for a long time. God was knocking and I had an opportunity, but I just wasn't ready. And so the next thing was, you know, well, I can't have a problem. I've never overdosed. us lower that bar. I've never been to the hospital. And I'm just continuously lowering this bar. And I'm getting uh, lonelier and lonelier in rooms full of people. See, because I could always put on a mask and go out and, and drink and put things in my body and feel better. But it wasn't working anymore. And I didn't know what to do. Pretty shortly after that, I get some news from a doctor that I've had this condition, that I've had since birth, and uh, he says, you know, drugs and alcohol make this worse. He doesn't know anything about my past, and and I'm pissed. I'm thinking, well, y'all should have found this at birth. (laughs) Y'all should have found this at any physical. Like, what's going on, doctor? You know, and uh, I was really, really pissed, and so I did what any buddy would do in that situation. I broke up with the girlfriend without telling her anything and went and did more partying than I'd ever done in my life because that's what made sense. I was filled with resentment towards doctors. Maybe things would have gone differently had they told me this sooner. And I get to about 23 years old and life looks good from the outside. I'm always able to paint an all right picture and i say you know it says restless irritable and discontent i would add a fourth word to that for me misunderstood i never felt like i could talk to anybody and so i would have all this agony inside of me and i didn't feel comfortable talking to anyone because they would just point out how well you have this going for you and you have this and like try to talk me into being okay when i'm not okay So the only answer I had was to drink. And I can't tell you how many times I tried to stop on my own. See, I could stop. I did it thousands of times. I just couldn't stay stopped. And I finally hit a point where I was willing to accept the fact that I might be depressed. This was like six years after my first diagnosis. And I say, all right, I think I might be depressed. And I'm having a little bit of a breakdown and not wanting to talk to anybody in my life. Because family, friends, girlfriends, none of them. I just, I, that didn't feel understood. Nobody gets me. And so I checked myself into a 30 day rehab and I get there and I'm telling them, you know, I think I'm depressed. And they said, yeah, you might be, but fill out this questionnaire for us. And I said, all right, you know, and it's talking about, have you done this? Have you done this? how, and how many times have you done this? And it's all drug and alcohol related. And I'm brutally honest. And uh, they said, "Yeah, yeah, you got a problem with drugs and alcohol." I was like, "I don't think that's the problem. I, I, I don't, I don't think you heard me right. I'm, I'm here because I'm depressed. You see, I checked myself in. I'm just trying to finally get a hang on this depression thing." And they said, "Yeah, that might be the case. But well, we're gonna let you in on a little secret. Normal people don't end up here. Doesn't matter how you got here, man. And." Something happened in that in that rehab. It was the first time that I was really introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, I had gone to a couple of meetings before for different reasons, but I was so closed off. And so for the first time I was required to get a sponsor and I was required to do the steps. And within 30 days, I was at step eight. And so I was moving through them and things were getting a lot better, a lot better. The promises were coming true and so i leave and you know there's a lot of gifts of sobriety that come as a result of the gift of sobriety and so i i got active i I was had a home group i was active in the home group i was helping others and i just started getting all these gifts you know new job new truck new apartment multiple new girlfriends Uh, i missed that part about rigorous honesty and practicing these principles in all of our affairs And I I thought that if I just didn't drink and I didn't use, then everything else was off. Everything else was cool. So I get about nine months down, and and I start having these crazy thoughts, man, because that's where it starts. And I'm thinking, could an alcoholic really not drink for nine months? (laughs) I think this got a little out of hand, you know? Uh, And I was just justifying all this this crap, you know? I, I create this crap, and then I buy it. And so uh, I went out for a little bit of controlled drinking (laughs) and two and a half years of the same hell. I mean, the same thing. And it came back quick. More hospital visits, more depression, more suicidal thoughts, more broken relationships. All that stuff that I had cleaned up before, forget about it. And I believe in my experience, it's a lot easier for me to stay sober than it is to get sober. You know, that's a 10,000 pound door. I remember thinking, well, I know where the solution is. I can always just come back. We don't always have that luxury. And it took me a long time to make it back in because of this thing I call pride and ego. And you mix that with shame. And that's a nasty thing. It's a really nasty thing. And so I, I make it back to what is now my home group that I've been going to called McKinney Men's Group. It's a at a, at a park on Saturday mornings and we get anywhere from 70 to 80 guys. And there's a guy in there that will have 45 years this year and he always makes everybody laugh and uh, he always talks about tits and ass. <laughs> and and he never raises his hand whenever they ask who's willing to be a sponsor. And so I wanted that guy. I wanted the guy that made people laugh, the guy that didn't raise his hand, you know, cuz I I think naturally humans want what they can't have. And so I get him, and I'm thinking, dude, I've done this before. Like, This is going to be cake, you know? And Because the desire was kind of removed. I mean, I I dove back in pretty hard. And for a month, this dude's telling me I'm on step zero. (laughs) A a month. And I'm, I'm like, dude, what do you mean? Like, I did all this, this. And he's like, I'm not convinced. I'm just not convinced. And that was exactly what I needed. That was exactly what I needed. And so today... You know, I've been going. I went through the steps once in the first year, and now I'm going through them again. I'm digging deep. I mean, these amends that I'm making, I don't even know if they need to be made, but he says they do, and so (laughs) so so I'm making them slowly. And uh, and there's just there's so many gifts of sobriety that come. I mean, the promises really do come true. We read The Ninth Step and I I used to think that was crap. And the first time I ever heard it, I I thought, that's what I mean. That's it. Because I always said I want to be happy. That was my thing, right? People are like, what do you want from life? And I thought this is like really philosophical and like deep. And I'm like, I just want to be happy, man. You know, forget about the money and all that. I just want to be happy. And I think that's a bunch of crap now, you know, but the Ninth Step promises are the long form of what I meant. Like when I first heard that, I was like, what? That that's possible. That's crazy. And I've read them to some of my friends that are not alcoholic. And they're like, what's the big deal? And like, do, you, do you see that? Are you want me to read it again? And um, I didn't think that they were going to come true. But I can sit here today and tell you like one for for example is to not regret the past nor wish to shut the door on it. You know, there was things that I didn't want to tell anybody that I wanted to take to the grave with me. I didn't see how there would be any benefit from me bringing this stuff up. But I trusted the process because I saw something in y'all's eyes. I saw that y'all had found a way out and you were free. And now those things that I once considered to be the worst things that had ever happened to me, I view as the greatest things that ever happened to me. Because they let me see who I was and who I never want to be again. I can see the things that I was taking for granted, willing to throw away on a daily basis, that I now have an opportunity to cherish and nourish. And it's really simple stuff like family, freedom, health, time, the ability to be of service to other people and love. And I want to talk to you about love for a second, because there was about eight years of my life that I didn't even use that word because I didn't believe in it. I thought it was crap. And today I believe that, you know, I really can't give something away if I don't have it. And I've heard the golden rule for the first time when I was a kid. teacher said, treat other people the way you want to be treated. And I thought, that's some good stuff right there. I can get behind that. And so I always tried to treat people with respect and love and, and treat them kindly. But the deal was, I didn't love myself. I didn't respect myself. And the big book quotes something from the big, big book in here. It says, treat thy neighbor as thyself. And I believe that's where the golden rules derive from. And so I, I've come to believe that I can't treat my neighbor any better than I treat myself. And so what this program taught me was how to love myself, how to respect myself. And in turn, I can now respect you and I can look at every single one of you and tell you that I love you. And this is coming from a guy that didn't use that word for a long time, not even to my family. And I, like I said, I got sober in t- October of 21 this time And my grandmother passed away in March of 21. So just a few months before that. And it it hurt me. And at her celebration of life, we had a bunch of people over to the house and I got so drunk I passed out in the chair and woke up in the middle of the night with a blanket over me. And that was my condition for the next several months because I didn't know how to cope or grieve or do anything that normal people do. And so today, a living amends that I have for my grandmother is that I want to stay sober and that I want to help people. I want to be kind and loving and respectful. And I'll just say that my experience has been that if I don't want to get wet, I need to stay in the middle of the boat. And I'm lucky to have friends today. So at least mentioned friendship. I thought I had a lot of friends out there, but I didn't. All we did was party together. We talked about women and music and sports. And I think that was it. You know, maybe the party. But today I have real friends. Friends that I can talk about life and goals and aspirations, hardship, feelings, the mushy stuff. And I'm lucky to have great friends like Solis and and a lot of guys that have walked before me that throw me in the middle. You know, I got voluntold that I was going to be the GSR of our group just because I was happened to be standing around. Don't stand around if you don't want to do something. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so now I find myself traveling and, and doing district meetings, area meetings, things of that nature. And I need it. You know, we read the traditions. I used to hate the traditions. thought it was the most boring thing. And so what I did is I got closer to it. I got a service sponsor and we go over the traditions. Because this program saved my life, and it saved the life of a lot of people that I know. And I know that if I get away from it, I may not make it back. I've lost a lot of friends both inside and outside of these rooms. It's a deadly, deadly disease. And so while I look back, I can see all the opportunities that I had, and I don't know why I had them. You know, I say it's by the grace of God that I'm sober, and I think about the word grace, an undeserved gift. You know, I could have easily been dead. I could have easily been mentally broken from some of the things that I did. And for whatever reason, I'm not. And so I know that I may not have that same gift if I go back out. And it talks about being rocketed into the fourth dimension. That's been my experience. If anybody in here has not been rocketed into the fourth dimension, just know that it's real. It's very, very real. And there is a way. I want to leave you all by just saying that this is really the single greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. And it was the last thing that I wanted. I I have a little bit of a bucket list, and I can promise you that being a member of Alcoholics Anonymous was not on it. You know, I kind of rolled through uh, my story, but I tried everything. Everything. All the therapy, all the books, every possible thing that I could think of. And it wasn't until I surrendered that I was able to win. Those guys knew what they were talking about. And if I want to keep this gift that was freely given to me, I have to give it away. So I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for having me here. And I wish you all the the best. Thank you.